0: discover you're pregnant, and then things intensify as you tell someone in your family, and then this punishment and this, this stigma reaches a height as your pregnancy becomes more obvious. The domestic chores you do, going to the grocery store, those things fall away. Your family fills in the gap, so all you really can do is stay at home because, again, this idea of being hidden, not being seen, trying to be invisible.
1: Welcome to Social Medicine On Air, a podcast where we explore the vibrant world of social medicine. We learn through conversations with healthcare practitioners, researchers, and activists who are working to create a more just and healthy world.
2: Hey, good morning, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, hello, wherever you are on this planet. Today, we have a wonderful opportunity to have a wonderful guest, Sashini. But as you know that I'm Jonas Attalus here based in Boston, and I'm a first here resident at Boston Medical Center. Hey,
1: everyone. My name is Brendan Johnson, and I'm a fellow in theology, medicine, and culture at Duke University and a medical student at the University of Minnesota. And today we are very pleased to be joined by Sashini Moodley. Would you introduce yourself for us?
0: Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be here today with Brendan and Jonas. My name is Sashini. I am here today because I would like to talk to you a bit about some of my research that I pursued while doing my PhD at Oxford in the UK. And I am currently also starting med school at the University of Virginia. So straddling both those lines.
1: So yes, tell us more about uh, yourself and your research, what you've been pursuing, some of the questions that you've been pursuing um, in the area of social medicine?
0: So my PhD is kind of across two departments, African Studies and Social Policy and Intervention. And that just meant double the reading, <laughs> double the preparation, my literature review. But also it allowed me to look at these two complex issues of social science and, and medicine and hence social medicine, which which you guys know a lot about. My research focus is looking at HIV and teenage pregnancy, teenage motherhood. So that kind of drew me in quite quickly as I was beginning the PhD. And so as a result of that, I've worked with pregnant teenagers and teenage mothers in a township in the Free State of South Africa called Batsabelo Township, to look at what life is like when you are a pregnant teenager with HIV, um, or, or HIV negative and pregnant, and then after you have your baby, what, what motherhood like looks like for you at that young age.
1: Um, so maybe could you tell us, I, I'm not sure if all of our audience would be familiar with townships, what a township is, kind of the unique cultural, social location of, of the work that you're doing, um, and then maybe some of the challenges that these young mothers face.
0: I think that South Africa has a, has a long and fascinating political history, which is so closely tied to the, its social history and its racial history, and Batsabelo is part of that. So in, in many ways, um, well, right now, where to start? So, so right now, Batsabelo is the second or third largest township in South Africa, behind areas like Soweto, which is in Gauteng province near Jo'burg, and um, townships like Guguletu and Kailicha, which are in the Western Cape, near Cape Town. Townships were created or or socially engineered, uh, maybe is a better word, politically engineered, during apartheid to accommodate non-white people, usually black people, black South Africans who lived outside the urban center. So for Botzebello, usually there were white South Africans living in Bloemfontein, which is a thriving, even today, bustling urban center, um, home to the University of the Free State, excellent institution, and then workers would travel between Bloemfontein and Botzebello. Botzebello is about 75 kilometers outside Bloem. So these areas townships were created in, in a political sense. Um, typically, they do not have the best resources or kind of services. So talking about healthcare, care, um, water, electricity, housing. When the ANC government was elected in 1994 and Mandela became president, a lot of that changed. Townships still exist. Obviously, that's where I worked now when I did my fieldwork in 2019 and 2018. But those services have improved greatly. So you're seeing running water, you're seeing um, as part of the reconstruction development program, the RDP, brick houses being built as opposed to kind of shelter structures or shacks that usually exist in townships. Um, Electricity is... Definitely provided now, and then you have clinics that are community based in the sense that they're attached to a larger hospital. Bozzavello has one large hospital that serves the entire township of about I think it's 181,000 people, and then you have a community clinic in each section of the township that will serve the, the people in that section. Usually Nurses work in that clinic, highly skilled, highly compassionate nurses um, without doctors. So if you need to see a doctor, you go to Botswana Hospital. So that kind of is is my focus, my bird's eye view to to zeroing into how it relates to my research.
1: Um, And in some of your research, I know that you have focused um, on young women, teenagers uh, who are pregnant and kind of the sense of, of care or lack of care or of, of visibility in the public eye, or a sense of kind of like retreating into, into the private life. Can you tell us more about some of the lives and dynamics of, of the young women who you spent so much time with?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I also just fact checked myself, there are 188,000 people in Bozzabello, so now we, we know that. No. Um, absolutely, so, so something that I was, like most other researchers, surprised to find was this, this idea of hiding and, and being hidden or trying to be hidden, and this is closely linked to what I call the punishing discourse linked to teenage pregnancy. So I make the, I try to make the argument that being pregnant, or discovering your pregnancy, is a mistake, and it's a sin, and it's a calamity, it's a a catastrophe, because you are young, you are unmarried, you're uneducated, um, you're unemployed, you know, all these reasons that, that we all understand quite well. As a result of that, you are punished in, in many different ways, some more obvious than others. For example, you are not allowed to, not allowed in, in air quotes, to have an abortion. Legally, the South African constitution says that any woman or girl can have an abortion up to 20 weeks in her pregnancy what happens in the clinic is the nurses make the appointment for an abortion once you've expressed that that's what you'd like to consider and um, or a procedure you want to have done you've obviously considered it quite quite a lot and then the nurses delay this appointment past the 20-week mark so then suddenly you've you've passed the you've passed that window of opportunity and you are, air quotes again, not allowed to have an abortion. That's closely linked to the religious discourse. And, and you know, again, that's a huge area of study. Um, but that's one punishment, right? So another punishment is you are not allowed to go to school. There's a lot of literature on this in South Africa in terms of pregnant learners who are encouraged to stay at home during their pregnancy because being at school, just, the, just being seen right being visible at school can condone teenage pregnancy for other learners in other words oh you know my friend lorato is pregnant and the teachers are helping her and it, it it's not that big a deal so in some ways the consequence of what you've done this extreme sin speaks more than um, how you might feel about it a third there are many ways but i'll just highlight finish on three um forms of punishment is that you're encouraged to, I don't know if encouraged is even the right word, but you basically get the message as a pregnant teenager that you shouldn't be seen because if you are seen people gossip about you and they talk about you and you then kind of fuel the mean things they say about you. And it it really is mean. I mean, you're 16. I think about when I was 16 I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying to get through school. Would I have been able to handle this incredible secret? And who would I have turned to? I I don't know. So as a result of that, you're not allowed to go to school, which makes it easier to stay in your home. And you really only go to the clinic for your antenatal appointments, which many mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers mandate they remind these young women constantly to access antenatal care, which is brilliant. Um, and I make the argument that that kind of monitoring and familial care is a huge part of the mother-child relationship and how girls can make meaning of becoming mothers with support from their families. But until you get to that point, right, there's kind of this curve or this this arc of, of stigma where you discover you're pregnant and then... Things intensify as you tell your someone in your family. And then this punishment and this this stigma reaches a height as your pregnancy becomes more obvious, right? Because you're really only leaving the house when you want to go to the clinic. In the interim, the, the domestic chores you do, going to the grocery store, um, those things fall away. Your family fills in the gap. So all you really can do is stay at home I met a lot of girls in their homes um we couldn't sit outside on their verandas or you know on on the porch or kind of walk around um, the way other ethnographers do because again this idea of being hidden not being seen trying to be invisible all my words no one told me or no one said these words right so so it's my observation um And then after the baby's born, family support kicks in, in an incredible way, Um, perhaps more out of necessity than anything. This trajectory of stigma and punishment kind of declines. It becomes more gentle and life changes because now there's a baby and people have to make meaning of what this this human being means to them. But suddenly you don't have this big bulging tummy attached to you. You can separate yourself from the pregnancy because you are just a teenager again when you walk on the street. Um, during that time, uh, some girls who, who are able to finish school will go to a new high school in a different part of the township where they're not known. And so this social history becomes erased in a way, or a new, rather a new identity is layered on, right? You're now the new student in the 10th grade. You're not the pregnant student in the ninth grade who wasn't allowed to come to school so all of these things contribute to the hiding and they part of of this punishing discourse in extremely painful ways and i'm not quite sure if that's the intent of the community and of of the families but that's what i observed at least
1: yeah thank you thank you for um and and how would that also relate to a, a condition or or a state of affairs that is less visible, you know, like diabetes or HIV or something like that are is there kind of a similar dynamic in in those cases um or is that quite different?
0: So I went through many levels of um, IRB and ethics approval. For me that meant that there were many they were kind of different stages in my research process. So I had an observation period and then I had an kind of preliminary research period and then I had a full research period and at each stage <laughs> I was allowed to do different things all in an effort to to protect these young women right so um, at an earlier stage when I, when I wasn't quite formally collecting data one of the um, we're having a, a group discussion um, in the waiting room of the ante, uh, antenatal, Uh, area of one of the clinics and one of the girls said to me we were talking about HIV and at this point I was not allowed to know no one was I was not allowed to ask anyone's status so in other words I could not ask someone to disclose their their HIV status to me um, according to my research approval so the discussions were more general and in many ways that was very helpful for me because it it helped me decide where to go when I finally got full approval So we are having a general discussion about HIV and and stigma and what it's like to live in a community that that, um, has HIV. And I should say, I should have said this earlier. Um, So South Africa's uh, HIV prevalence or or the amount of, not so much AIDS, yeah, it's mostly HIV, um, looking at pregnant teenagers. In the district in which Botsabelo sits called Mangaung, It's roughly 1 in 10 pregnant teenagers, 15 to uh, 25, has HIV. And nationally, it's much greater. It's um, 20%, so 2 in 10. As girls get older, however, in that same district, Mangaung, it moves to almost 3 in 10. So the HIV prevalence among pregnant young women more than doubles And that's greater than the national prevalence. So you're looking at an HIV prevalence among pregnant women specifically, 15 to 25, 15 to 30, that's 1 in 10 or 3 in 10, which is quite high considering how many girls are pregnant. Um, We have about, I think, statistics from 2014 show that there's 77 live births per 1,000 girls in South Africa. The United States has 22. So 77 live births is... Quite a lot. And this young woman, Vero, said to me, and anonymized names, obviously, to protect confidentiality, she she said, I'd rather have HIV than have sugar. And her reasoning was that having sugar, having diabetes, was more physically obvious than having HIV because it would usually lead to an amputation because it would be poorly managed diabetes. And so this is obviously coming from her experience in her family. HIV, on the other hand, can be hidden because you have free antiretroviral treatments provided by the government. The South African government spends, I think, $5 US dollars every year to provide free antiretroviral treatments to the whole country. There is no cutoff for how sick you have to be. In other words, at any level, at any level of CD4, you can access ARVs. So Vero's argument in our discussion, was that having HIV was easier to hide, less visible. Again, this idea of who's seen, who's not seen, what is being seen. And she would, if there was a choice, she'd choose HIV. Everything else kind of falls by the wayside because now you have this huge issue, this huge secret, this huge problem. And everyone knows about it, but everyone doesn't know about it at the same time. It's um, Johnny Steinberg in one of his articles calls it an open secret when he's talking about HIV. You you know who has HIV in your community, but you don't talk about them to their face. Very similar things having a teenage pregnancy. You know that two streets down, this girl, Busi Siwe, is pregnant. And you talk about her. And so when your daughter in your house, if she becomes pregnant, she knows that other people are going to talk about her the same way that... You talked about Siwe, right? That narrative gets reproduced. Hmm.
2: You, you know, um, this is extremely an, an interesting topic, and especially I grew up in a in a third world country also, and and I and I know people who have HIV, and and you know there's all that stigma, but I'm trying to connect with you uh, more in the sense of. Uh, you know, you know when you live in third world country It's different from first world country what well, this is different from the u.s. Where people are a little bit separate I have a sense like growing up in Haiti. Everybody knows everybody's secret. Um, yes, you have that in the u.s too, eh? but uh, but I feel it a little bit more in Haiti and you kind of feeling like excluded easily and uh, and I discussed that a lot Um. With one of my friends, she's a super feminist and she's always defending, like, women white. And she always said, like, uh, the moment, like, the teenager is trying to experiment life or or discovering her body is the white moment, like, we decide to punish her. And actually, it could be, like, the moment we have to go toward her and include her more. But actually, we exclude her. Because in Haiti, for example, if you're pregnant and you go to school, they will kick you out of the school. So he said, try to imagine you are going for a pregnancy, and now they take you out of school, so you don't have right to be educated. And then now, when you go to your family, more often, more often. To be honest with you, more often, parents don't really welcome that, and they will. There is another punishment that comes with that because you put dirt on the name of the family. You see what I mean? And what happened to the guy? What happened to to the to the baby's father? You see what I mean? It's like. She she's like there is that sense of injustice where society is protecting the guy, protecting the teenage boy, but but teenage girl have to, uh, carry all the weight. Mm-hmm. And, and while you are saying all that, man, I'm 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 thinking about all the people I grew up with. You know, I grew up in a in a place where it was easier, way easier for me to be a teenage parent than finishing high school, for example. You know, because school is not guaranteed for me. Education is not guaranteed. I got to pay for that. So if I do any, the margin of it was so small. By any, you know, mistake, that will hold you back. And I and I have friends. I have people who grew up with me that get pregnant. I have several of them. Who get pregnant? I cannot talk about the HIV status because I've never asked too much about it. But I I have a sense of that. I know what it's mean. You know, to be excluded by every social group and you become nobody and 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 i can only imagine like um for somebody with 16 me when i was 16 i was i was in trouble with everybody you know I mean? especially with my mom you know <laughs> you I mean it is like i was sexy, and then my mom was telling me to you have to wear this and i'm fighting no i got to wear that because i'm a man now you sort of mean? so now at that moment you say to me you're a dad or you're a father what do you mean but i'm a dad you sort of mean? i'm just fighting to know what type of socks i have to put you sort of mean? and then now you say to me i'm a dad so i got so it's, it's 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 interesting like to see um to see that those kind of dynamic um and I talked with a girl recently. Um, she's a black girl. And I was telling to her why I was asked, well, I wanted to have a perception of her about that same topic, the topic of get, being pregnant while, um, while you're in college or in high school. Um, she said to me like, but she was comparing like black and white. And she say like, for her as a black Christian who grew up in a Christian conservative family, if she get pregnant, her parents will uh, abandon her and she may not have the opportunity to continue co- uh, college anymore, So she will say. But she said to me, she had classmate who happened to be white. I, I, I'm not going to assume that is the white people thing, but she said, uh, her, cla- her, cla- uh, her classmate uh, who were white, Molly Bewell, the girl get pregnant and then they go to, uh, to you know, uh, to an abortion clinic with her and, and she continued her study. You know the, the the sense of power like if you when your parents understand a little bit more that you, they can include you, you they can bring you back into society they can they can make a plan of redemption for you you sort know of I mean like bring you back like like make you feel like it's not a scene anymore I, 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 on the opposite on the other side it's like f- for her, for her background it's like if i do that i'm done in society
0: so many my neurons are fiery on all cylinders <laughs> um gosh so families play such a huge role here right and, and again you know I think about me being 16 and my family is so important to me you know we you know Erikson and Piaget and Freud have all these incredible <laughs> theories about what happens when we're teenagers and what phase of cognitive development we're in and all that good stuff and Many of some of that stuff still still applies today. And so you think about you trying to, you know, roll identity and confusion. You know, who am I? Who are my friends? What am I doing? You know, and somehow during that crazy period when hormones are just everywhere, you're expected to make these immensely powerful decisions about who you want to be for the next three decades, you know, um, what you want to do families are very important and i'm i in in one of my chapters i make the argument that familial care and and support is what helps get girls through and that's not always consistent and it's and it's not across the board so what i mean by that is at the beginning of my dissertation kind of goes through what happens at the beginning of pregnancy and then during pregnancy and then after pregnancy so it's kind of chronological um and at the beginning, you, you see that, like, like you said, Jonas, families are upset. When you, when you tell your mom, she's, she's upset, she's angry. Your dad is upset or angry. Um, and these young women have, have there's some really funny stories about how they choose to disclose pregnancy. These stories um, make me chuckle, make me smile. For example, one young woman told me she didn't want to tell her mom, so she texted her mom that she was pregnant and she saw her mom receive the text, they were both in the kitchen, and her mom didn't say anything for weeks. Like, what <laughs> what, are family meals like? You know, when, when you wake up and your mom's having coffee in the kitchen, and there's this, this op- again, open secret between the two of you, right? Um, another young woman told me she was too scared to tell her mom, so she when she had morning sickness, she left the bathroom door open so her sister could see her morning sickness and then tell her mom, I think that my sister's pregnant. So, so much creativity here, right? And and um, there are scholars in South Africa, Sisa Ngobaza and Nawazi Mkunazi, who've written about how these are forms of agency, right? In a, in a situation where these young women have no power and no voice still they do have power right in, in in how to disclose the information And so after these these this this thing that is teenage pregnancy becomes known, families are upset and it makes a lot of sense that that's the case um, because again we come back to how we started this conversation we're living in a, a social climate where three out of four people are unemployed so like like you said Jonas, teenage pregnancy teenage motherhood is is the default if you are one of the things I, I try to to argue is that there's a sense of intergenerational disappointment in other words my right so so this is actually this is a this this came up in my supervision with um, my two supervisors Johnny Steinberg and Lucy Kluver where um, professor Steinberg said you know it, it seems like for many of these young women, their mothers were also pregnant teenagers, and their grandmothers were also pregnant teenagers. So, in some ways, you pin all your hopes on your daughter and you want her to break this, let's call it a cycle, right? Cycle of pregnancy. We know about the cycle of poverty. So, similarly, you want her to break the cycle in for the most part we believe education is the key here it's one of the things that could get you that tiny chance at employment right so suddenly you have all your hopes pinned on your your teenage daughter you're telling her every day to go to school you are working very hard right you you're that the one in four who is employed you as a mother are going back and forth between Bloemfontein to work in the hospital, in the government offices, or as a domestic worker, and your daughter now is pregnant, all that disappointment gets funneled into anger, right? And frustration. What did I do wrong as a mother that now my daughter is going to walk the same path I walk? A path riddled with punishment, trying to be invisible, gossip, blame, mistake, catastrophe, calamity, is painful, right? So that disappointment plays such an important role, I think, in this process. In some ways, it might be that the girl, the pregnant teenager, as she's coming to terms with what she has done, the mistake she's committed, so is her mother, so is her family or her primary caregiver. I keep saying mother, but that could be grandmother or grandfather or aunt. It's a very difficult process, right? And all of that is happening in this context of extreme poverty. You're living hand to mouth. You're exhausted every day. Then, earlier I talked about this, this stigma and punishment that has an arc-like trajectory. You get to the height of the pregnancy. And, and through those months, right? So for the most part, you're going to discover pregnancy at 20 weeks. So you have a good like four or five months of being pregnant. And through that time, what I observed is many families become so supportive. And that might be because, we, you know, talking about this intergenerational disappointment, mothers know what their daughters are going through, or at least some, at least some of what they're going through, right? Because times are changing and, you know, young people are young people and all that good stuff. So families become more supportive and... By the time the baby's born, suddenly a teenage pregnancy is not so much of a calamity. One part of that is that, you know, like, like I said, the, the baby's now detached from you. So you don't have to walk around with this bulging belly that makes it so obvious, that makes your discretion so obvious, right? Another reason is when families, they, they pick up the slack, and it takes so much, so many decisions to do that. For example, we talk about this one mother, right? So, so I said, she's the one in four, she's employed. Some mothers give up their work so they can stay with the baby at home and the pregnant teenager can, or rather teenage mother can go back to school. What, those decisions are huge, you know? So, so now you go from having some kind of family income to only relying on government support, welfare grants and social grants, because you're making the sacrifice so your daughter now has the shot at education and employment. There's there's one young woman, she wants to be a medical doctor and she's quite determined that that's what she's going to do. And her mother did exactly what I just described. She quit her job in Bloemfontein and she was a custodian in a, in a government building. So she now takes care of the baby, the new baby, yeah, at home, I think the baby's about eight months old now, and this young woman went back to school, finished 11th grade, and will be applying to medical school, in South Africa you go straight from high school to medical school, she'll be applying next year, in some ways her mother's sacrifice is an investment, into that future right so education is a rising tide that lifts the whole family because when this young woman becomes a doctor her whole family benefits from that level of employment and that level of success in her community so that I mean that would be wonderful and I'm so excited for the day that that she can cross that stage as a medical doctor but these decisions that happen in this this painful part of her life and her mother's life I don't know when, when those decisions um, will be processed and when those feelings will be processed, if ever. I hope they will be. But it seemed to me, even learning about this the story and being able to share the story or listen to the story which this young woman shared, so much of it happened behind closed doors. So, so my role as a researcher, I was hearing about it through... This young woman, and sometimes through her mother, but it never happened in front of me. Right? No, no one's ever going to say, "Oh, you're the researcher." Yes, so you know, why don't you come in and and sit in in our family conversation uh, from six to nine p.m. and listen to our family feud? That doesn't happen. I wish it did. So, so much of this is happened um, beyond what I could see and beyond what I could feel, and and being able to have the privilege to work in the space where you're dealing with extreme vulnerabilities, um, young youth, young people, pregnancy and HIV, three intersecting vulnerabilities here. So much of that happened between the lines and it was it was all the social cues and, and the things that weren't being said um, that helped me see this. And so to come back to your your question, Jonas, about your friend, sometimes it is a, a question of family support sometimes it's a question of race sometimes it's a question of culture here it seemed to be a question of privilege in a way and education um if you are in a private school in south africa and you are a pregnant teenager and you're 16 you there's a good chance your parents are going to be able to you know let you, let you stay at your holiday home in a different state or, or keep you at home, which is far away from school because you have a car. No one sees you walking around the community that's attached to your school and you have your baby or you don't have your baby and then you you change schools or, or you continue at that school. Money can, can wash away a number of sins. Uh, many girls had to stay at home after they had the baby because they had to take care of the baby uh, one young woman wants to be a paramedic and she can't do that because now she's take care of her baby. How does that change the mother-child relationship? When your baby, the thing that was the source of your shame and your blame suddenly pops out, or not suddenly, nine months pops out, now you have to care for this human being that is not allowing you to do what you wanted to do with your life.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's a hanger there. You know, there's... Uh... No, I'm, sh- I'm I'm talking based on experience of things that I've seen, you know. Uh, While you are talking, I can literally point out in my head four people that I grew up with who went under that and two fam- um, cousins who, who went under that too, you know. And, and if there is one thing in common. It's like this little baby that hold me back. That, there is a sense of shame, anger. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I saw things and... And uh, thing that I've, I don't know, I, I, you know, things that you, you you, don't want to see and you don't want to talk about and you don't want to, you don't want any human being, you don't want a mother to experience that, then you don't either want a kid to experience that too, you see what I mean? And uh, and it's not uh, it's not easy, eh? it's not, uh, it's something like really, like in my experience growing up in Haiti, it's something that I've seen Really, come It's so, and that's one of the reasons When people talk with me, they say, "They say Jonas, you were the outliers." You sort of it just... is, <laughs> but 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 to be honest, I think the girls. Like, if I was a a woman, my life I could have been in that position too. My life would have been harder. You know, no matter all challenges, I could have experienced in life. I think being a woman will have make it harder you sort of it so so i think i think like not me i'm the outliers but the lady will will come from my background and then they make it for those people are the superheroes yeah well
1: and and i i just was i've been a little bit quiet just because i've been thinking about um kind of all these family dynamics and and like i was just thinking about that and and even the experience of these young mothers with the baby in the sense of like frustration with their situation and with themselves maybe and also with their family who are you know ostracizing them hiding them away but also supporting them so much and then like i'm sure the sense of hope that that they're putting on on their child of like well i'm going to make sure that my baby gets the best education possible and it's have- it's just yeah. like
2: all yeah. of these things are just so tied up. and. I, I, I'm going to share something, you know. I wanted to keep that, but I'm going to share it anyway. I, I know this postcard will be forever, but I'm going to share that. I have an aunt who get pregnant, something like that, similar. And I remember, like, she had a lot of anger toward her daughter. Like, a lot of anger. To the point, like, she wanted to kill the daughter. Like, like literally. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so my mom took the daughter away from her. And then the daughter grew up with me. So it's like she become like a, a wow. sister for us. She grew up with us. She grew up with us. And then by the time... Um, because people are experiencing a lot of anger. Eh? It's like they'll think that you're seeing like... You, you you think like a human being will not do that. But uh, but there is a position. Human being come and then they, they, they get into a crisis moment. And I remember I was a kid when she was... I was like eight year old when she tried to do that. Um... Uh, like she was in a deep crisis and i remember she was crying by trying to give the baby to drink something that could have killed the baby and i remember me as a kid i was like eight or seven i don't i can't remember the age i was but i remember i was witnessing that and then for some reason my mom came my mom saw that he took the baby and then um she 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 left the the baby grew up with us like she literally the baby grew up with us and by the time the baby was I don't know, 10 or 11, the mom reappeared to her life and then the mom was better in a much better position. And then and then the mom said, I want you now to follow me because I'm your real mom. And my mom asked the baby, "Do you, not the baby anymore, a girl, yes. do you want to go with your real mom or do you want to stay with me? She said, I want to go with mom. So her mom bring her. But what happened is, she get pregnant too. You sort of be like, she, she like by the time she was I don't know fifteen or sixteen I can't remember the age she get pregnant too, and then at that time, um, you know it it was like like that intergenerational like frustration or, or because, uh, you know, w- but, but what happened now the dynamic that I saw in the family that happened after she get the baby now the mom take care of the baby and let her mm-hmm. go back to school to finish school. And you see what and I mean? And then the grandmother. Your your aunt
1: yeah. maybe sees it as an opportunity to take care of her granddaughter yes. and to let her daughter go back to school. Yes. and that that's kind of her own, like making amends maybe towards about her anger towards her daughter that she yeah. had. Yes. or something.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, it is actually it is it's like it's like the 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 girl, like the grandmother is the one really taking care of the girl, and the girl don't even call her mom mom. He called the granddaughter mom. So, I don't know, there's there's some dynamic I don't understand so far, but that is happening, you know? Mm-hmm. And you yeah. just see, like, the...
1: the. I, I was just listening on audiobook to Pathologies of Power um, by Paul Farmer, and, and one of the things that he talks about in that book is um, the idea of structural violence. And, you know, I think this is a, a big topic in social medicine and comes out of uh, Johann Galtung and some work in the 60s. But, like, you just see the kind of... V- slow violence of of poverty really and it and you know and and it's i guess there's an element also of saying like well it also is incumbent upon the school system to like make sure that these girls can still have an opportunity to learn and maybe have daycare there or some like some sort of um, solution is possible in that sense but like the the just like grinding violence of poverty which is just the the surrounding conditions in which these families are making the decisions, and the decisions that the families are making are like trying to protect their daughters socially, maybe, but also in that protecting, it's also hiding their daughters and like hurting them and, and building up this sense of um, shame and ostracization and all these things and like, and we're going to be disappointed in our daughter because you know this is not what we had hoped um, for her future. But at the same time too, like the expression of hope and care is an expression of love in some sort of strange way. And, and it, yeah, I don't know. This is, it's just been really interesting. Like, and even thinking about ways in my own family and the families of my friends and like the ways that these dynamics between parents and their children and extended families. And then of course, just like the larger social cultural matrix in which, um, these women and all of us are trying to swim. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, you guys, you guys bring up such important topics and there's so much to tease out, right? Um, Jonas, you said you tried to avoid these these discussions we even trying to think about the dynamics as you were going through school by reading and coming home late, which is something you could do because you are a man, right? You you were a boy if you are a 15, 16-year-old girl, can you come home at 11 p.m.? Probably not. (laughs) I certainly couldn't when I was 15 or 16. Um, So then, you know, you bringing up, you talk about the role of the father, and there's... So much, so many scholars have have written about and, and done such thoughtful work to try and understand what happens to the father, what is this this double standard that you know that we're we are all talking about where the girl is saddled with the majority of this blame and shame because it's happening to her body. So her embodied self and her identity is changing in a, an extremely physically obvious way. It's not happening internally for the most part, right? Whereas for the baby's father, who's to say? It, a lot of times, sometimes it's, it's your word against his, right? And, and then in other times, it's, okay, the families get involved and now we're going to have a, a negotiation. We're talking about marriage. Okay, he's going to work to pay bride wealth, pay la And so for some of the young women that I worked with who are um, still dating the the fathers of their babies, or are married to the fathers of their babies, that's an important conversation. How marriage and becoming a married woman instead of a teenage mother, two totally different identities, that is a form of redemption. In a, in a practical way, you have the support of two families sharing this burden. In an emotional way, you're not alone. Right, you you are attached in a in a legal sense to it to another human being, and then, you know, some of what you guys talked about is also on redemption is is the idea of a teenager's mother taking care of the teenager's baby. I mean, we we haven't even touched on HIV yet, right? We've only been talking about teenage pregnancy. <laughs> what does this, you know, when you which is something that I it surprised me. I I went into um, you know, at the at the outset, try getting approvals for this research, thinking, okay, HIV is going to have a huge impact, right? Because it's HIV. It, it changes who you speak to. It changes where you access your care. It changes, you know, the the red, how you regiment your life. Actually, not really, right? Because because look, we've just been talking about teenage pregnancy, and, and look how much stuff that look how how much stuff there is here when you put hiv into the mix suddenly you're dealing with okay how did i get hiv the girls i worked with were infected by their partners what does that conversation look like now i'm not only telling you that i am having a baby one young woman for example told me um when she told her uh boyfriend and who's now her husband that she was pregnant he then told her that he was HIV positive and she needs to get tested because she probably is positive and he doesn't want the baby to be positive. Her, I mean, she, she is an amazing young woman. And for her to describe and share that moment to me, the sense of betrayal. Um, they'd been dating all through high school and it turns out that he was born with HIV and in her mind, that changed what HIV meant. She said to me, it wasn't his fault that he got HIV. So now you have a different sense of blame and shame. How did you get HIV in addition to how did you become pregnant, right? I think today South Africa has probably about 7.1 million people living with HIV. And there's like 37 million people in the world. So South Africa, one country, carries a sixth of the global burden and yet you know i don't i don't even think there's a there's a board game that presents you with this kind of complexity of decision making maybe monopoly does i don't know um where you're dealing with trying to protect your baby from hiv yet this baby is a source of shame and now you're dealing with how you make it up to your community so we come to redemption as a teenage mother, these young, young women work very hard to take care of their babies, right? So, some, sometimes that manifests in terms of education, going back to school. Some young women are very thoughtful about the names they give their babies. I'm going to name my child happiness or perseverance or determination because that name can protect the child even when I'm not there. Some young women, one, one young woman told me she wants to build a school because she got HIV um, because she was involved with drugs and truck drivers and she doesn't want the same thing to happen to her son. If she builds a school, her son, in her words, will be able to learn karate and chess and do after school activities that she didn't get to do. So this this sense of reimagining a future, despite all these trials and challenges, it's incredibly inspiring. To be able to do this work, to have done this work, and and it, it was conducted in an ethnographic qualitative sense, which for me meant co-constructing and collaborating with these young women because stories are, are never one-sided. And it definitely in, inspires me, not only now as, as I kind of process that and analyze it, but also for my postdoc work to look at how I'm going to be able to re-engage with these women and follow the trajectories of their life as they move on because clearly there's something greater happening here how are they doing it why are they doing it who's helping them do it those are those are all questions that remain
2: <laughs> Ayella, I, uh, I really want to have the privilege to ask you the last question and um, what bring you to this type of work what what, what what's your story like what's your personal story? that not only bring you to this type of work, but also keep you doing them? Like, mm. what are you looking for? What, what's your own soul? What did you start? Like, who, who are you? you know I mean?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Just a small question. Yeah, yeah that's a huge, <laughs> <laughs> huge
0: question. But a great question. Who am I? I became interested in what life is like with HIV quite, quite young. I, I think I was in primary school, kind of into high school. And I have two amazing parents um, and I have a younger sister who I adore. She's my hero. And growing up, we did rather as a family, spent a lot of time um, in different HIV orphanages and HIV homes um, that my my parents were involved in and therefore my sister and I, you know, were invited to spend some time with children with HIV and orphans with HIV and and also teens. And so because I was close in age, um, it never really made sense to me how when I fell down because I was playing in the grass, my friend fell down and we were both bleeding, my blood was treated differently to his or her blood because they had HIV as to a young child uh, sashini a young childhood immature naive sashini blood is blood right And, and my father's a physician and so from a very young age we talk about blood in our household and we talk about the body and you know all these all these cool cool things that happen when you break your bones and stuff And it didn't really make sense to me. So in high school, I became very interested in HIV stigma, why we treat people differently. And that was just the beginning of this incredible journey through my undergrad and my MPH and now um, the PhD, which was how does HIV change your life? It turns out that teenage pregnancy changes your life in a completely different way, maybe even more than HIV does, because HIV is hidden in your blood. there's a scholar named Beth Vale, she worked in the Eastern Cape in South Africa, she writes about the, the blood panopticon, how you kind of constantly surveyed and monitored through blood work in the clinic, and um, because you are on ARVs, and yet, at the same time, everything is inside and hidden, and your transgressions or mistakes might not be seen, or maybe, or maybe they will, because you're constantly surveying yourself, because you know other people are. So... Personally, I don't have HIV and I'm very lucky that no one in my immediate family has had HIV and that in and of itself has has been such an interesting thing because I, I get this question a lot, you know, like you obviously care about this topic, why? You know, is it your fault when you are born in a place that will make you be treated differently? I don't know. But on this topic specifically, we need to hear about what young women are going through, if only to learn from them, because they are so amazing. Mm-hmm.
2: That was yeah. deep, eh? That um, you know, I promise, you know, this episode I'm going to listen to it and listen to it again and listen to it again because <laughs> that's so much knowledge. Thank you so mm-hmm. much, eh? Thank you so much, Sashini. Thank you. Yeah, thank thank you, you for spending time with us. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with our listeners and thank you because I learned a lot from you and you you also met me went back home. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> so I could you. connect I could connect with what you are saying. I don't know what you guys are doing after we
1: finish recording but I'm going to go call my family.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, a great a great idea absolutely. Enjoy the rest of your weekend guys. This is Social Medicine On Air, co-hosted by Brendan Johnson and Jonas Attalus Produced by
2: Brendan Johnson and myself, Raghav Goyal. Intro music credits to Savage on YouTube and outro and incidental music to Smith the Mister. And a huge thanks to Clara Brand
0: for our logo and visual work. You can find her on Instagram at underscore off underscore brand underscore. If you would like to share your story on the podcast or have any questions at all, please reach out to us at socialmedicineonair at gmail.com or at Twitter at SochMedOnAir. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe, join our social media, and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to us. Thank you so much for listening.